Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to explore trends in the world of fashion, from design to merchandising to sales. To help us do that, we've brought on a guest expert who's been involved in many different aspects of fashion over the years. She's Anne Cecil. Anne Cecil is an adjunct professor in the Retail and Merchandising MS Online program in the Westfall College of Art and Design at Drexel University. She's also an instructor in the Fashion Merchandising and Marketing Program at Community College of Philadelphia. Anne's professional career is a mosaic of experiences, retail, product design, fitness professional, speaker, award-winning artist, and art and design educator. In addition to part-time teaching, she has a merchandising consultancy, Ono Made in the 191, which focuses on independent makers, retailers, and manufacturers. She also designs, makes, and sells shoes under her brand label, Rocks and Lava. Hi, Anne. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hi, Jeff. How are you today? It's so beautiful outside, and I'm so glad we could get together. Well, thank you. I am too. And it's a gorgeous spring day in the Philadelphia area. For those of you who can't see what we're experiencing, too bad. Maybe you have it too. But it's great to have Anne with us. Anne, I know you've been involved with the fashion industry for decades. We won't say how many. That's something we'll keep to ourselves. But in fact, your major in college was design and merchandising. Can you please tell our listeners just a little bit more about how and when you first became aware of your interest in pursuing a career in the world of fashion? Well, I would just love to tell you, Jeff, of a story when I was eight years old. Now, I will say to everybody, <laughs> there are stories that precede my eight-year-old story, but the eight-year-old story set me on a track for much of what we'll talk about today. Wow. So I'd like to share this Please. story. So when I was eight years old, my father was pursuing a job in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Okay. And he was going down to interview for this job, final interview. And I was eight years old and he and my mother and I and my best friend at the time, Carrie, went down to spend the weekend because my mother had not spent much time in Atlantic City and she wanted to get the lay of the land. We stayed in the Haddon Hall Hotel, the Chalfont Haddon Hall Hotel, which is currently resorts. Oh, but back in that day, it was a very beautiful Victorian old school building and hotel. And on the boardwalk side, there was this fantastic boutique and they had Italian leather products. Mm. I walked by and spied in the window a knee high pair of mauve suede go-go boots. <laughs> it was the first time I fell in love. <laughs> I had the stomach flips, the whole thing. <laughs> 
I will tell you the funniest side to this is I hate the color mauve, but I had to have these boots. <laughs> they reminded me of the fashion icon Twiggy, who yeah. was a model in the 60s, and I was smitten. Wow. Now, obviously, eight years old, mom said no way. Right. But that set me really on a course of really loving fashion and really being interested in fashion and why I have arrived where I've kind of arrived today. Wow, that's really interesting that you can trace your roots not only back to a time when you were just a young girl, but you know a specific thing that happened that actually turned the light on for you. That is really interesting, Anne. Thanks for sharing that. I mentioned in your intro about various things that you're involved with. I use the fancy term a mosaic, which it yeah. really is. I think it might be a good idea, Anne, if you let our listeners know just a little bit more about the different ways in which your present activities cross-cut with the fashion industry. Okay. I think it might be instructive to just let everybody know what design and merchandising sort of is. Good idea. Okay. So I know everybody can just think of any product you own, whether it's your cell phone, whether it's a garment, any of it. The journey of that product starts with somebody having an idea, and then they develop that product in whatever way they need to do it. And then we need to see if that product is saleable. And once we determine that it's saleable, we have to put it into production, and then we have to get it into the consumer's hands, and then we have to figure out and support the consumer after they've bought it. That big umbrella and anything that happens in between any of those functions is part of design and merchandising. So design and merchandising is really sort of the overview and the business of design, of which fashion, of course, is a design discipline. Right. So that kind of talks about sort of just where we are in terms of the industry. And so it's a very broad industry. And what is beautiful about that industry is that because those functions, each of those functions kind of require very different skill sets, it attracts and employs a really diverse population of people. Hmm. So that's sort of where design and merchandising is. So I'm one of the unique people in design and merchandising. Okay. Who works with my left brain and my right brain. Wow. Usually what will happen is you'll have the creative people who are more in the design part of it, or perhaps the marketing part of it. And then you'll have more the business people who are more in the finance and the logistics and the production side of it. But I happen to just be a rare bird that happens to love and enjoy all of that. And I'm fairly good at all of it. For me, teaching is great because I like to teach all of that and I love to share with people, but I also am a consultant and I love to work with the independent as opposed to the corporate. So that for me is something important because I have been a maker seller since I was 16. Wow. So I'm always making certain things. I'm always creating certain things and I'm always selling them. We were talking a little bit earlier before we started to talk for the podcast about, you know, my mom and I was telling you she came from England. My mother taught me to knit when I was three and I still knit to this day. And such a good thing knitting. I keep reading about how good it is to be able to knit as a good for your mind. Yes, it's actually very good. It's also very calming for, for 
a number of people. So for me, this whole integration of this whole system is very natural for me. And it's something that I have a great deal of interest in all of it. But I really feel for the independent as opposed to the corporate structure. And a lot of that has to do with, I guess, I'm kind of more of an entrepreneurial spirit. Independents often do not have the resources to get the same resources that are available to corporate entities. So I like to help them find those resources that will help them and give them the same kind of access and level playing field as those corporate competitors. Okay, that's a great overview. As you probably know, looking forward is called that because of the upbeat aspect of it, but also looking into the future. But we need to sort of lay the groundwork to set the stage for that. And to do that, we like to look backwards a little bit, Anne. If you wouldn't mind helping us do that by giving us some idea about what have been some of the major fashion trends I'm talking about in design, merchandising, sales yep. that have occurred over the past few decades. I think the easiest way for me to lay the groundwork because it will be really integral to going forward is this. The fashion industry, we talk about it as the fashion system. So let me just say that. System. Okay. And it has really changed in my lifetime mm. hugely. Up until about, say, 1955, 1960, there was really one stream of fashion, and it was kind of like you had a designer group of people who sold to the wealthy, right, or the bourgeois as they got, you know, more money. And then you had the people who were more the working class who bought patterns and made their own garments, Hmm. So it was what we call trickle down. It came from the hierarchy down to the masses in terms of style. And also it was located in predominantly France and England. That type of system really came through till I would say about 1955. Wow. Okay. In 1955, we started to have the business of mass coming in because of course we had had industrialization before the wars, but certainly really got cooking after the wars in terms of style and fashion, because we also had more leisure time and more time to do things that we fancy in our leisure time and also things that were sporty in our leisure time. Sure. And so what would happen is that the fashion people in the mass area would see what came down the runway from the Paris couturiers and they would make an affordable version for the middle class. Ah. So this sort of happened really in the 19, late 50s, early 60s is when this was going on. And so now you have another price point with a knockoff that people can, you know, afford, the masses can now afford. So in other words, if I can stop you for a second. Sure. So people, people who were part of the masses, who weren't part of that bourgeoisie, and up until that point, they were largely buying fabric and making stuff for themselves. This well, is the big change. Manufacturers making stuff for the masses. Right. Although, so just to give the strata, right, the very wealthy were having the garments made by the couturier. Then probably the upper middle class who couldn't afford a couturier to make it for them 
had their own dressmaker who made it for them. Mm. So, you know, you would have a dressmaker or a tailor who made your suits if you were a man. And then the mass population would be more the middle, middle and lower middle class and those who were, were below that. Yeah. Okay. So they would be making it themselves. Yeah. So in the 1960s, we had the youth quake. And this is sort of when the culture wars kind of started to happen and real yeah. big changes in youth culture. And that's really sort of when fashion started to take off quite a bit. So this whole area of the mass area, we call trickle across. So we had trickle down, then we had trickle across. <laughs> okay. And then in the 1980s and youth quake in the 60s also had a little bit of this, but it really hit its stride in the 1980s. Fashion designers started to be influenced by people from the street. So it started to trickle up. Huh. And that led to this real interest in Japan and all these cosplay and people who were out dressed up in various interesting ways. And so fashion designers started to really look at the street and incorporate what was going on in terms of those kinds of street people and bringing it back up. So trickle down was how it started trickle across was how it kind of went in my lifetime and then it moved to trickle up and that mass group that production group in recent years sped up to be fast fashion which is something that is has been a very hot topic for many years because it's not really a sustainable way to make clothing it's kind of a throwaway idea of making clothing so you buy it cheap you wear it once you throw it out wow sounds like contact lenses um, <laughs> it really does. Now we'll, we'll come back to this business of what's happening nowadays, but that was a great way of summarizing things. I should have had you do this earlier. I apologize people. I guess I figured that you knew it and I was the only one who didn't, but there may be a few other people who don't know it. You've used the word couture. Ah. I never took French. I don't know much about fashion. Could you just explain? I kind of get the idea of it's high culture or something. What is couture? Well, okay, so couture is the highest level of fashion. This is where you have a fashion designer who creates samples, often very high-end, very expensive. They send it down the runway. This is what we see all the time very easily now, although this is changing. The couture show is often the most fanciful expression of what the designer is looking at in terms of trend for that season. So a couture purchase is me sitting in that fashion show and seeing a dress and saying, I love this dress. That dress will be handmade by the couture house for me in my size. Like you said, it's a step above tailoring. Yes. Tailors are very, very skilled people, but think about in women's fashion. So like if this was a beaded dress, somebody would be hand beading this for me. Wow. So there's lots of specialized skills in the creation of that garment. Thank you for explaining that. Yep. Quick follow-up question. I remember reading about Levi Strauss starting way back when. Yes. And they were, weren't they more or less producing for the working class people, the jeans? Yeah. So were they, they were kind of a little bit different than maybe, or they came on earlier than some of this other stuff? 
Well, they, I mean, also you're, this is a good point. There's always, as soon as we had industrialization and we could actually mass produce anything, we had a number of things, but let me say the, here's the fine line. In the 1800s, Levi's were not a fashion item. They were more like a uniform. Mm. So if you think about it, like as soon as we could manufacture uniforms, we were making them for the military. We were making, you know, jeans for variety of workers. So the uniform is a, or workwear is different than when we really talk about fashion, we're talking about things that have their own trends, their own life. Now, jeans, Levi's included, became very integral as fashion items as well, but much later. Much later. And that's good. I'm (laughs) glad you made that distinction between, yeah, I mean, there were uniforms for years and years and years, that versus fashion. Yes. Different. Excellent. Since looking forward is heard around the world, Anne, you just spoke about the trickle down and the trickle across and then actually the trickling upward. I know you talked about fashion kind of originating, at least for the bourgeois in France and England. Are these trends that you've been talking about trends that seem to also have existed in other countries as well? They would describe their fashion history similarly, or is it much different? The fashion system that I'm talking about is predominantly based on a Western cultural perspective. Okay. But if you think about Eastern cultures, you know, one of the things that's really important is that in many of the Eastern cultures, there are social mores that are involved with what you can and cannot wear. There are even often religious reasons for not being, you know, for what you can and cannot wear. And so their system would have been quite different because they have rules of dress that are different from the Western rules of dress. Yes. As you look at the countries in Europe. Yes. With the evolution of fashion, the fashion system, as you're calling it, be pretty much similar as has happened here in the United States in the way you described it. Yes, absolutely. Because it was born in Europe. And in fact, it was disseminating through Europe much earlier than in the United States, because of course, we're the youngest of the Western yeah. countries. So yeah. it was really system, like, you know, that system was all through Europe. Okay. Sounds like the trends, at least early on, started over on the other side of the pond. Yeah. Let me have you speak a little bit about trend setting and, tr- and where the trend setting has occurred. Again, we'll get to the present day, but if you sure. think more historically, and so I remember a few years ago, I went to Milan. I went to visit my daughter who was living a little further to the north in a town called Mantova, but I spent a few days by myself in Milan, and that's a real trendy place, Milan. Not like I know a lot about fashion. I don't. I'm learning more now, but I knew enough to know Milan, one of the fashion capital. So I'm interested in knowing about Milan, about other places that you would say have been traditionally the trendsetters when it comes to the fashion system. Right. Okay. So Milan is one, but Milan is a super interesting case. Mm. Let me just sort of say what sort of defines a fashion city, because I think that's important to understand. It's a place where it is cosmopolitan. It has a strong cultural background, including the arts and design, theater, film, you know, those kinds of cultural things, music. It has a finance center, 
and commerce. You know, it's big with commerce. So the biggie is Paris. Paris, yeah. In terms of fashion. The second one would be London. The third would be New York. But then I'd probably put Milan. But so let's just, um, I just want to quickly just say a couple of things. What's really interesting about all of each of these is that there's a very different sensibility about fashion in Paris, which is all about couture and syndicated couture. They have a chamber, you have to belong, you have to be into it. It's always been this way. London has a much more eccentric look. New York, what Americans are known for is sportswear, not athletic wear, but sportswear, casual wear. Like we have always been the casual crew. And I just want to mention this name to everybody because she, who is the the person who invented this, I'm using air quotes right now, (laughs) in the U.S., her name is Claire McCardle. She's known as the mother of sportswear. And she right now is being celebrated in the last couple of years as a big figure in American fashion. So there's a lot about her. And if any of our listeners are interested, there's like book, her biographies and all sorts of stuff. And then Milan is, so there's so much to say about Italian design just to begin with. But what Milan was really known for in terms of being a fashion city is a pret-a-porter city, which means ready to wear. So let me just go back a minute to the fashion system. When we started to go to the trickle down and the designers were being knocked off at lower price ranges, you know, they didn't want to lose business. So they started to create their own ready to wear business. They took their high-end stuff and they came up with another line that was starting to be more mass-oriented and less expensive. Milan was known for that. So here's one of the things that I think is really interesting about that in particular. So when you think about Milan, Milan was a financial capital. Its surrounds had a lot of industry and manufacturing. It had the opera. So, I mean, it had all those cultural kind of contexts behind it. And also the place of communication. So advertising, which is another part of being a fashion city. You've got to kind of be the home base where there's a lot of advertising and marketing going on. And they became known really for this ready to wear because their designers, and I think this is just an Anne Cecil years of fashion comment. Okay. I think what is really interesting about Italy is that a lot of what happens in Italy happens because they were city-states. And I think it affects a lot of what goes on even in Italy today. Even though they are one country, they still yeah. sort of operate as city-states. And they really became the place where the designers took a real entrepreneurial approach And they were designer entrepreneurs. Just to draw a comparison, if I may, when we look at Paris designers, every fashion designer has a merchandiser behind them who is the business brains of their business. When we were talking left and right brain. So the designer's designing and the merchandiser's in the back saying, hold up, we can't make that too expensive. Dial it down. (laughs) That's the business side. Exactly. In Italy, they were more like I was explaining me, left brain, right brain. So the designer was integral in design and the business side. And the business. I mean, they didn't have some business people with them, but they, designer, took an integral interest in the business as well. I see. 
Now, I've got some follow-up questions based on what you said. You mentioned, and I won't remember her name exactly right now, but you will. She is the person who's being recognized as the initiator of sportswear, what we're known for, you said. When did that happen? 1950s. That was in the 50s. Yeah, this is like in the 50s when we had, so this is like when everybody sort of came back, this post-World War II, we had the GI Bill, we started to be able to end up with people who were able to live lives where they had time for leisure, and more people, like many people who could have time for leisure. And in America, we were all more relaxed in terms of, I mean, you know, there's a strata of people in the United States who are very much based in their heritage and their traditions of where they come from. But there's also, I think because many of the people who came to America, particularly in the second wave coming through Ellis Island, you know, they were not well-to-do people. They came as not well-to-do people. But finally, many of their descendants were able to do well after World War II. So they became middle class, and that meant that they did have more leisure. And when you say sportswear, are we talking about, I'm thinking of a guy, turtleneck sweaters? Is that leisure suits? Yeah, leisure suit was a very specific thing. But what I'm thinking of is when when a man would be wearing his khaki pants, his blue blazer, and maybe a turtleneck. That is what's considered sports wear, as opposed to athletic wear that you would wear to play a game or do a fitness activity. And what's interesting about this is when you don't know the history, it's sort of surprising this didn't start until the 1950s. (laughs) That's really something. Yeah. Okay, now we're moving to the present time. Yep. And without speaking right now about COVID, we're going to get to COVID. Yeah, yeah. I would like you to speak a little bit to everybody about what are the most recent fashion trends that you are seeing, design, merchandising, sales, and maybe speak to why that's the case, Anne. And one of the things that you haven't said yet, and I'm sure you could have spoken about it for an hour in and of itself, but maybe now you can bring in a little bit more is the retail side too. Because I know, again, pre-COVID, you've already seen changes in retail. What are you seeing? Well, it's funny you should say that because the first thing that I'd like to talk about is the path to purchase, which is about retail. Mm. So for many, you know, as long as we've had the internet, there's been e-commerce. But fashion has been one of the hardest sells via e-commerce The biggest reason is because what happens with retail is the minute you touch something wherever you are, in your mind, you start to own it. So that's interesting. So, what I love about retail is that it is still, still the one place you can go for entertainment that is free. That's interesting. Because you don't have to buy it. You can walk in, you do not have to buy anything. Window shopping or in store shopping. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But what I can tell you from understanding retail is that the minute that a human being starts to touch an item that they do not own, they start to envision themselves with that item. Interesting. If they like how it feels. So I think one of the biggest problems with e-commerce is that you don't have touch. And it's something we've not been able to really kind of get around yet. But then what would also happen is the photo doesn't look the same color on your screen because we can't control what everybody's screen color looks like. 
So there have been so many pain points to the purchase of e-commerce, but what has been trending since we've been able to do it is ways to overcome those pain points. So for example, Zappos, big shoe company. Oh yeah. Okay. They were so integral when they started, what they decided to do was they decided to put a bent on customer service. And as an internet company, you know, an e-commerce company, that was really a smart move because what they started to do was see where are the pain points for my customer? Well, in shoes, right? It might be that sometimes you're a whole size and in a different brand, you're a half size, or you may have a wide foot and certain brands cut well for you, cut not. So, you know, Zappos got to the point where you could order multiple shoes and free return the ones that didn't fit. Yeah. They also moved their distribution centers close to UPS hubs. So this meant they could guarantee that they could get you shoes within 24 hours because it just went from the distribution center across the street to the UPS store, which went on the flight and it was here, right? So we've been removing all of these pain points. And so returns is one of the worst parts of the internet business because the return rate is high. But we've also, and you know, you've probably noticed this is that this has happened for a long time. Let's say I'm a store that has a, an online organ and a retail, physical retail store. Well, now we have two paths to purchase and I could buy something in the online store, but return it to the real store yes. or vice versa. So yeah. the pain points are something that we've been trying to change. The other thing that's really different in the path to purchase is how we market to customers. And we've been doing this for a long time because as you as a communications student will know, in the early part of the 19, you know, 1960s, 1970s, forever, it was one-way communication. We told the cons- consumer what we had. The consumer didn't have a lot of ways to push back on that until social media hit. And all of a sudden it became a two-way conversation. Yes. And then as the algorithms got better, we're not looking at an audience of hundreds, thousands, archetypes. We're looking at an audience of one from the retail perspective as the retailer. So now I have to tailor my message to one person. So that whole way of selling is very different and has been very different up until today. I mean, we've been on that path, I would say, for the last 20 years. So that's important to know. Now, in terms of just fashion trends, I will just tell you that fashion business is predicated on the fact that we need to tell you as a consumer that you need something new. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's the way it used to be with automobiles. Exactly. They were designed so that they would actually rust out. I understood that from something I read. We have to keep the cycle going. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of always say, well, are you feeling kind of blue? Well, of course you do, because you don't have the newest, latest, prettiest, shiniest thing, right? Yeah. So the fashion industry really works that way. The interesting thing, I think, that our listeners might really find that they didn't or haven't maybe thought about is that. What tends to be interesting is that designers often somehow, because they've kind of got their tentacles or their antenna out and a good designer absorbs what's going on, often they seem to come to the same 
very similar idea of what the trends should be. So I think that's a really interesting part of the business. Although there are trend companies that designers use. So they go out and they find the trends all over the world and they mm. put together trend books. And color is, of course, a key component in the fashion industry. And there is a color trend board. They go out and they look at what the colors are really going to be each season. So there's a whole back end to what we as consumers see in the store. The real thing that I think is really interesting is that very often the designers are already feeling it. They use the trend forecasting services to kind of justify it so that the merchandiser who's got the money is saying, okay, we'll buy in. I'm not going to take your word for it, but because <laughs> you've backed it up with all of these other well, professionals. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll th th then we'll go ahead and we'll do it. If you could just add a quick comment, you mentioned what I'm going to call, and this is not the right term, almost like disposable clothing. Yes. Is, fast is that not a trend? Is that, is that a trend right now? Well, it still exists right now. Yeah. So that youth culture that we talked about even in the 60s, and it's still very important. We're always trying to get that 18 to 24 year old crowd. So you want to be popular with them, particularly in terms of if you are really a trend driven business. And, you know, you can't really be at a huge price point because kids who are 18 to 24 just don't have that kind of disposable income. Right. And you want them to keep moving on quickly. So we have stores, like I'm sure that you've heard of, called H&M. H&M is a fast fashion retailer. However, they offer also basics and clothing for people in a broader age range than what I'm talking about. And they have what you would wear as a young professional at a value price, right? One of the biggest ones that I could say that's very has been very popular in the United States that is a real fast fashion retailer is Forever 21. Hmm. And they nearly went out of business, but they have been bought now by a conglomerate. This is another trend in the business. The fashion business is now they're conglomerates that own all sorts of fashion companies. So Forever 21, what they would do is they would literally see what was going down the fashion runway from the very influential brands for young people. They would knock it off almost exactly but in a cheaper fabric but that yeah. fabric might have the print that looked exactly like the one that was being sent down by calvin klein or donna karen or whoever yeah. and sell it for a very low price and so what happens with fast fashion is it's just seen as a disposable item and it also may be a very poor quality so that you can't actually you know you get maybe one or two wears out of it and it's got a hole in it now let's take a look at COVID. What impact do you think COVID is having on the fashion system? And again, we could talk about from the designing to the merchandising, selling, whatever. What impact is it having, Anne? Okay, so these are pretty easy to discuss. The one thing that really is important is that people who have been working from home, perhaps not going to the office, not going out, have really decided how important comfort is to them. So sweatpants are having a real moment. In <laughs> now I'm going to leave that there because there's a lot of for, for people to look at about that. There's writing, people have written about this in the New York Times, the Atlantic, you pick whatever big uh, news organization is your favorite place to go. You'll look up sweatpants and fashion, you'll find something. Okay. But what I do want to say, because I like to just say this to everybody is 
I do not and have never equated comfort with only sweatpants. So I am sitting here talking to you in jeans, a, you know, a t-shirt and boots. There is nothing uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable in that. So I yeah. just want everybody to remember <laughs> that while sweatpants might be okay, um, and I don't mind that you wear sweatpants, they are not the only thing that are comfortable. I just want everybody to remember that as we move forward from COVID because we're going to get out of it soon. The second thing that's really been interesting just to talk about that retail changes is yeah. now retail stores have also added pickup and delivery. So you can go to the store and pick your product up or you know some of them are even offering their own delivery services within a certain mileage. Yes. So the big change for the retailer has been if you are having people just come in to pick up, you need to give up part of your selling space to house those items that are there for pickup. Ah. And you need to have a way to verify who's picking what up. So you need a salesperson devoted to that. So that's a big change. And then of course, the change that everybody will be aware of because they couldn't find toilet paper in the beginning right. is supply chain. And supply chain is just works this way. It doesn't matter whether it's an established supply chain or it's a brand new one. It's always going to take at least 90 days to ramp it up to where it wants to be. Yeah. So in terms of COVID, those are the big things that I would say are changes in terms of the industry. Wow. How about employees? Well, employees have been working a lot in the retail. You know, they've been a lot of our frontline workers, not necessarily in fashion only places, but like a Target has fashion in it. And that's, you know, those people are working. The one thing I would also just mention is these stores have inventory from last spring when we shut down that they never got to put out there. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing is going to be what do they do with their 2020 inventory? How are they going to sell that off? So that's the question right now. Yeah, and you wonder if it doesn't mean there'll be some good buys really good buys for people. It could be. I mean, there's a number of ways they could think about getting rid of them, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how that really plays itself out starting now. Well, that is a perfect segue, Ann Cecil, into looking forward. That's because exactly right. you get the chance to tell us how you think it might play out, how things might evolve in the fashion system but it seems as though in modern times, they evolve more quickly than they used to evolve. As you think about this, whether it was because of COVID or not, things that you talked about that already were sort of gathering steam, yep. what might our listeners anticipate in the way of change in any aspect that you want to talk about in of the fashion world over okay. the next few years? Right. Okay. So let me just say this, the fashion trends right now that we're seeing going forward as we coming to the end of this are still very much based on comfort. One of the big things that has been coming into fashion since last fall is kind of the prairie dress or the moo moo dress. So it's a big dress. It's a long dress. A lot of what we're seeing right now in the spring has a lot of very feminine touches. And I would tell you that that's probably in reaction to wearing your dark blue sweatpants for a year. <laughs> so they have florals and ruffles. Some of them have big puffy sleeves. So it's really kind of a celebration of things we probably haven't been wearing. I think that the customer is going to be considering comfort in terms of style. So the designer will need to be thinking 
about comfort as they design, more so than they have in the past. I think we may see a growing interest in supporting your local stores. Hmm. I'm hesitant to say that though, because what often happens is we see people saying they want to do that, but then not actually doing that. We'll let that hang. Some of the things that are happening in that big system, we are looking much like other industries at nearshoring, which means that you would actually have your products produced in a closer location. So for example, in terms of shoes, Mexico is a great place to get shoes made. People who are making shoes might start to think, well, let me have my shoes made in Mexico as opposed to China, because I can get them to the U.S., more easily. Yes. And then the other thing that I would say is we used to do this, you know, in my lifetime and in my career, we used to have small manufacturing for some products in the USA all the time. So you could do short runs. It wasn't like, you know, you couldn't do mass amounts that would service a Walmart say, but you could do a number of things. Now we have in the United States and LA, a very strong denim manufacturing, small in comparison to China, but we can do a lot of denim in LA. LA also has factories that will do dresses and things, but not massive runs. But I think it will be important to maybe build out some of that and have a few more of those things. And then, of course, the other thing that's going to happen is technology. Technology is changing the way we do fashion all the time. Amazon is doing make on demand. Wow. So they have a T-shirt. Uh, and they have a patent on it. So you order your T-shirt, you know, you do a few measurements, they make one T-shirt for you and send it to you. So that wow. is definitely the way of the future. And we've been, again, looking for that. What I will tell you about the fashion industry is they're kind of slow to adopt technology. And I think that it may be because as we were talking about, it's a very tactile industry and the people yes. who are in it also have the touch thing. So I think the technology can feel very pushed away from it. You're not really as into it as you are if you are touching it all the time. So I think that's one reason that we adopt the technology kind of more slowly. But that is certainly one way to create sustainable fashion because you're not creating as much waste. You know, you're getting it right because I've ordered it. It kind of brings couture to the everyman because it's being made for me. Yeah. So I think that is another trend that we will see. Okay, well, you've certainly laid out several there. Thank you. Let's speak now about another thing we like to look at when it's appropriate on looking forward, and that is opportunity. So, Anne, you're a professor. I don't have to tell you there are a lot of young people out there trying to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their lives. And then we have people, unfortunately, who've lost jobs, some of whom are in the retail sector. Yes. And then we have other people who say, you know what, I don't like what I'm doing. I want to change it. And then you have people like myself into a second career. Yes. So are there opportunities for any of these disparate individuals in the fashion system, the fashion world? I know that there's a concern people may never get some of those jobs back in fashion. So speak to that. I know that's yeah. not easy to talk about. There's a lot of loss in the industry, but here's the growing area that I think I tell this to my students all the time, logistics. Oh my goodness, we have to get things from point A to point B. And I will tell you just a funny story about it. I have a friend in England, we were chatting, who's a fashion person like me, long-term, blah, blah, blah. 
and we were talking about the distribution of the COVID vaccine worldwide. We're talking worldwide. She said to me, they should have had the fashion industry do it because we can manufacture a t-shirt and get it somewhere in 24 hours. She's right. What an idea. <laughs> so I've been having a personal laugh about that because I love logistics. Logistics is getting these things from point A to point B. And let's just remember, it's not just the finished garment to the store. It's also the fabric and the raw materials that have to go everywhere. We didn't even talk about the textile business, which is the backbone of the fashion. Oh, yeah. So logistics is the way to go. If you are somebody who can get something from point A to point B, do it. And you will see that, of course, all these delivery systems and companies are really looking for people. And fashion does have a series of larger businesses that just works within their industry. So that's the biggest. If you can't get it where it needs to go and the time it needs to be there, it's not going to sell and you've lost money anyway. So logistics is really like the one of the backbones of this industry, and it is growing. And how do you prepare for that? If you're speaking to somebody in college, and it may be very different than you'd be speaking to somebody who's lost their job. Can you be trained in logistics or is it something Absolutely. you major in? <laughs> you can be trained in logistics because think of it this way. If you are working for somebody, you have to get box A from point A to point B. And somebody will teach you the easiest way to do that. Because of course, there are certain things that may happen. It's like, how quickly do I have to get it there? So these are all things that are changing because, for example, you might also, everybody will, in the U.S. would probably know that, you know, Amazon is creating more and more distribution centers across the country so that they can get things from that distribution center to you more quickly because it doesn't have to travel as far. And because they know for things that you buy more than once, they know about how long it is before you are going to buy it again. So they move it to the distribution center near you a week before they think you're going to buy it. And if it has to sit there an extra week, what the heck? But yeah, within yeah. the next two weeks, and you have it yeah. you know, the next day. So moving things around is going to be big for everybody. And that's where you see some opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, I, there will be jobs there. If you are able and can do the kind of work in a distribution center, that is also a place to work. It's a physically challenging job is what yeah. I'm going to say. Yes. Which is so it's not for everybody. Yes. But it's also very gratifying and satisfying for many, many people who do that kind of work. If it's the kind of thing you like, it's very satisfying to do it. As you've articulated, there certainly will be a great need for it. And this has been terrific. We could have had another separate show. I have so many other questions, but we'll, <laughs> we'll have to hold off. We'll bring you back. <laughs> for right now, how can our listeners find out more about you? the array of things that you do, your credentials, and of course, the services that you provide. Thank you. So if you are interested in knowing me as a professional, I am on LinkedIn as Ann Cecil. So you're welcome to join me there. My consultancy is O-N-O made in the 191. Yes, all of that.com. So you can come see if you need some help as an independent I'm here. I'd love to talk to you. And what we really didn't talk about, but it, I'm going to end with where we started is I make shoes. So yes. my shoe brand is Rocks and Lava, R-O-X-A-N-N-E-L-A-V-A. And the shoes brings us right back down to my first love. And when I found out I wanted to be in fashion. That's so. right. Back to your eight-year-old days. That's right. 
Isn't that fantastic? Well, Anne, this has been great. I know I have learned quite a bit, and I really appreciate all this information that you've shared. And I do want to let people know in case they are, and I don't know the right word for this, in case they are spelling challenged. There's probably a word for that. It's Anne, A-N-N-E, Cecil, C-E-C-I-L, not with an S. All right, Anne, thanks a million. This has been great. Jeff, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm glad that you have enjoyed it. I really have. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff-O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.